All right, how cool. He is risen. Oh, no, 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 no. It's Easter. Easter. We can do so. Ted already warmed you up. Ted, I didn't think that was very good. Did you? No, we, got, we, we can improve this. All right. Now, those of you in the overflow rooms, we want to hear you as well. He is risen. Yeah, yeah, we believe that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. The most important fact in the universe is God. And God is the ultimate fact that gives meaning to every other fact. And it's the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter, on this first Easter. One of the best, one of the most, I should say, examined facts, best attested facts in all of history that answers the biggest questions in life. Uh, the resurrection answer, answers for us, does God exist? Who is he? How, how can we know him? What, what does it mean for me? Now, I want you to know, this Easter Sunday, 2014, I am really thankful because I did not, I have not always believed in Jesus. For years in my life, I wanted nothing to do with Jesus. I didn't believe for a moment that the most important fact in the universe was God. Just didn't. I thought the most important fact in the universe was me. What I wanted to do, uh, the fun I wanted to have. But the resurrected Jesus Christ has totally changed my life. Did that in college totally changed my life and has given me a life I never ever dreamed possible and give me an ability given me an ability to cope to cope with overwhelming loss and tragedy that's way beyond me you can read my book it's in our bookstore on, on that story I'm not I'm not going to belabor that but I do want to say when I say Easter this Easter is the most important event in all of history. And when I say Easter is the event on which all history turns, and when I say Easter changes everything, I mean it because Easter has changed me. Now, the New Testament gives us four Gospels. So we have four different accounts of this bodily resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And this morning, because we are in this series looking at Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, I want to go to Mark's account of the resurrection. It's Mark chapter 16. You can grab a Bible in front of you. Uh, you can turn on your Bible or turn in your Bible. With the Bibles in front of you, it's just a little past page 1,000. Mark chapter 16. One of the things I appreciate about the Gospel of Mark and Mark's account is it's the simplest of the Gospel writers and the most straightforward. We're going to put this up on the screen as well. So follow me as we work our way through Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Now we know from the previous chapter that Jesus died about 3 p.m. on Friday. Jesus was on the cross for six hours from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, and he died around 3 p.m. Now when we come to Mark chapter 16, this is now not Friday, but Sunday. It's Sunday morning, as we will see. And these spices in this anointing were a very typical 
first century Jewish burial custom. Let's pick it up in verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Now I want to show you a couple pictures. A couple pictures of ancient burial tombs. Now what's so very interesting is as we look at uh, this picture is archaeologists have discovered about a thousand of these from this period in and around Jerusalem. Common burial tomb. What is uncommon, though, are these stones, these circular stones. They were a luxury for the wealthy because it took time and money to chisel these, to make them circular, etc. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus was placed in Joseph's tomb. Matthew, John tell us that he was rich. And so what we're looking at here is, and there are obviously, this is one of them, um, archaeological discoveries of these kind of tombs. We're looking here at the tomb of a rich man from this period of time. Now, let's go to the next picture. This is a picture I took on our last trip to Israel. And the reason I'm showing you this trip is because a lot of people want to suggest this garden tomb, it's called, is where actually Jesus was buried. I don't, I'm not convinced of the archaeology on that. And the reason for that is that this tomb is not a new tomb. And we're told in the Gospels Jesus was placed in a new tomb, a tomb no one had ever laid in before. And this tomb, by the time of Jesus Christ, was already a thousand years old. A really old tomb. But the archaeology is just fascinating. Fascinating. It helps you get a picture of what's going on here. So let's continue. Let's pick it up in verse 4. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now the other gospel writers tell us that the young man was an angel and that he looked like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. Now verse 6. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were, uh, their circuits were fried. They were afraid. Now let, let me back up. Uh, Jesus was born uh, not quite 2,000 years ago in a poor, in a dirty, uh, working-class, blue-collar village. And life was hard. As I've said before, the, the men who lived in Bethlehem, this village of maybe just a couple hundred people, uh, were the kind of men that changed their own oil, okay? They, they were the kind of guys that would have watched Duck Dynasty, not Downton Abbey. And, and they would have been livid by Russell Crowe's portrayal of Noah. 
Because these guys in Bethlehem knew that Noah was a man's man and he was, if he was anything, he was a righteous, he was a godly man. Jesus' mom was a poor, unwed teenager who created a, a scandal because she claimed her pregnancy was from God. Uh, Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, was a simple carpenter. And he taught Jesus to become one. And because uh, we have no knowledge, no, no record of, of Joseph in the Gospels during Jesus' public ministry, Joseph probably died before Jesus reached adulthood. Now, if that's true, then Jesus was not only raised in a stepfamily, which is complicated, but at some point Jesus' mother became a single-parent mom. Around the age of 30, everything changed for Jesus. Jesus took off the carpenter's belt and stepped into his public ministry and the whole world exploded. It exploded. Uh, no one had ever taught like Jesus. Uh, no one. Jesus performed miracle after miracle. He would calm storms. He would heal one disease after another. Uh, he would cast out demons. He would raise people from the dead. But amazingly, Jesus repeatedly shunned popularity. He repeatedly shunned the uh, religious and political uh, establishment. And he continually identified with the poor. He fed the hungry. He befriended social misfits, social outcasts. And he surrounded himself with a, a group of no-name disciples that in the eyes of the rest of the world were nothing but a bunch of losers. But repeatedly, the, the Gospels reveal that, that never once, not for one second, not for one moment, did Jesus compromise his sinless perfection. Over and over, the, the Gospels reveal that Jesus wasn't just another religious prophet, another religious nice guy. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was fully man and fully God, fully human and fully divine. He ate and drank and slept like any other man, and yet he walked on water. No one has ever been like Jesus. And as the gospel writers unfold the account of Jesus' ministry, that, that becomes clear, uh, that Jesus was the one, uh, the one sent from God, the one sent from heaven, uh, the long-awaited prophesied Messiah, king that jesus was the story of all stories come to rescue us from our twisted and tangled stories but the jews wanted a political deliverer someone who would overthrow the occupying romans and that wasn't jesus that wasn't jesus purpose in his first coming so as a result, Jesus' public ministry only lasted for a couple of years, three years. 
And then he was betrayed by one of his own disciples. Passed back and forth among the Jewish and Roman leadership like he was a hot potato. And then brutally tortured and crucified because crucifixion was the Roman first century form of execution. A horrible way to die. Incredibly, all of this was exactly as Jesus predicted, including his crucifixion. And then three days later, on that first Easter Sunday, the greatest miracle, the greatest event in all of history took place, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Also, exactly as he predicted. And so, as others have pointed out, you really only have three options when it comes to Jesus. Either he was a liar, a lunatic, or he was the Lord. And the Gospels, over and over, argue that he wasn't a liar, and he certainly wasn't a lunatic. And there has never been anyone like Jesus. There never will be anyone like Jesus. And that's precisely the point of the Gospels. But today, 2014, we have a problem with all of this. Because we live in a culture that separates fact from faith. You know, fact belongs to the realm of science and math and business. But faith to the domain of religion. And so we have convinced ourselves along the way that we can only be certain about truth in the hard sciences. And when it comes to the domain or, or the realm of religion, all we have are hunches, feelings, religious experiences. Uh, but what's so remarkable about Christianity, what's so remarkable uh, about the Gospels, and what separates Christianity from every other religion on the planet, and what makes Christianity uniquely reasonable, is that Christianity is the only religion that makes its validity totally dependent on historical facts. totally dependent on historical facts. And that's what we've just read in Mark 16. And by the way, the historical case uh, for the truth of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is uh, amazingly strong. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to make three points. I want to draw three conclusions about this resurrection that we have just read about. Um, and this all brings me to the first point. I love the way the New York City pastor Tim Keller puts it when he says the resurrection is a shattering historical event. Point number one, shattering historical event. Now when I was in college, I was taught that these disciples experienced the resurrection, but it never really happened. It couldn't, it's impossible. I mean, people, when they die, they don't, they don't come back to life. So the disciples, and this is what I was uh, 
uh, taught wanted to believe in the resurrection. So what happened is over time they backfilled and they created a story to support this belief. But when you come to the Gospels and, and read as we have just read uh, here in Mark, you say to yourself, wait, now hold on a second. Uh, these guys aren't writing religious make-believe. They're describing historical events. So, for example, Mark mentions three women, not one, not two, but three women by name. Uh, women that you could track down, that you could go to and say, hey, now unpack this for us. Uh, tell this is what this is all about. Women that were eyewitnesses. Equally important is that all three of these initial witnesses were women. And in the first century world, uh, uh, women had no credibility in Roman or Jewish jurisprudence. You didn't use them as witnesses. So if you were making this up, I mean, if you were backfilling a story you wanted to believe, you wouldn't put women in it. That the women are in this story is shocking as eyewitnesses, initial eyewitnesses, and it indicates it happened. Now you add to this that what Mark is doing is a couple of times telling us which day of the week, Sunday, it took place. The, the first day of the week, the, it took place on, on Sunday. And even the time of the day, early in the morning, at, at, at sunrise. Then at the end of Mark's account, he doesn't tell us these initial witnesses uh, coming into this thing were pillars of faith and, and looked at what had gone on and immediately concluded uh, that the resurrection had happened and they walked out of there just kind of floating in air? No. These initial witnesses left bewildered. Uh, they left trembling, we're told. They, uh, they left afraid. And over and over, the Gospels cast the followers of Christ, especially the disciples, in a negative light. I mean, the disciples argue about who's the greatest. The Gospels tell us uh, that they were confused and unbelieving, slow to believe about Jesus, that they at times thought, this is a ghost. <laughs> uh, Peter denies Christ. Uh, Thomas doubts Christ. These guys were political animals, just as we are today. They were political animals that, that lived for their politics and they had absolutely no categories for a Messiah that would be crucified for sin. Now I mention that because if you're trying to launch a religious movement, what you're going to do is cover up the leader's weaknesses. You're going to cover up leadership's weaknesses. But instead, what we have in the Gospels, as we see here in the resurrection account, is the Gospel writers exposing weaknesses, exposing uh, unbelief, exposing fear. And what that means is Mark is writing history. It's the only way to explain that. In addition... All the Jews, all the Roman uh, leadership had to do was produce the body of, uh, of Jesus Christ following the crucifixion of Christ and, and um, present the body 
and suddenly this talk about the resurrection would have gone away. Can't be any resurrection. Here's the body. It never happened. Instead, uh, these Jews who would have been the last people ever to believe that God could become a man after the resurrection, by the time we get to the book of Acts in the New Testament, thousands of them are worshiping Jesus, giving themselves to Jesus. If the resurrection didn't happen, uh, those Jews by the thousands wouldn't have been worshiping Jesus in Jerusalem where all this went down. This wouldn't have happened. And in addition, as the church grows and gets some traction, almost all of these disciples are killed. Killed for their stand for Jesus Christ. Killed because of their preaching of Jesus Christ. And what were they preaching? They were preaching datable events that took place here in Jerusalem that any time you could go and check out and talk to any of the witnesses. And they were killed because they kept preaching these dateable events. And if it was a lie, they wouldn't have given their lives for that. I mean, you don't die for what you know all along is a, is a lie. And so my point here is that the resurrection isn't religious myth. Based on experiences that people wrapped a story around. There's historical basis for this. Now, facts are stubborn things, and historical facts are stubborn things. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, therefore, is a shattering, stubborn, historical fact. There are other explanations, but they're weak. And by the way, have you been following the news lately and what's going on in, in Syria and are, are you aware that this Easter weekend, Islamic terrorists in Syria have said we are going to wipe the streets of Syria with the blood of Christians? And are you aware that on Monday of this week, seven young Christians were killed in Syria because they refused to deny their faith in the resurrected uh, Jesus Christ? And when we come to Easter here in the United States, man, we're thinking, can I find a parking place at church? Or what are we going to have to eat? Or how's all, all this going to work? And if you're a Christian right now, I mean this weekend in Syria, you're wondering if you're going to make it through the weekend alive. The reason Christianity is the largest religion in this world of 7 billion people, and the reason evangelical Christianity, I mean resurrection, Bible-believing Christianity is the fastest-growing religion in the world, and the reason some people are willing to die for their faith this weekend around the world because of their commitment to Christ is because the resurrection is a shattering, stubborn historical fact. Point number two. The resurrection reveals the potency of God's mercy, God's grace, and God's forgiveness. In Mark's account, there was just a little bitty statement that has huge implications that we tend to kind of pass over because the angel uh, says to the woman, uh, women, go tell the, the disciples. And what? Peter. Go tell Peter. Peter. 
What an incredible picture of grace and, and mercy and love. Peter has just denied Christ three times. Uh, but the angel doesn't say, uh, as I would have a tendency to you know what, I've had it with you guys. Uh, you guys are, uh, go tell the disciples, you guys are nothing but a fumbling, unbelieving, unbelieving group, group of idiots, and I'm going to find 12 new ones. And we're going to start this over. You guys had your time in the, the sun, it, it didn't work, and so I'm going to choose new. I mean, God knows our faith is fragile. I mean, we have a flat tire and we're 75% of the way to atheism. <laughs> and if it's raining, we're almost there. <laughs> if God doesn't meet our expectations, if things don't work out, if things get hard, God, why didn't you heal him? Man, we're all the way there. And Peter, not once but three times, had lapsed into functional atheism. Denied Christ, denied Christ, denied Christ. No, I don't know him. Uh, uh, putting that behind the betrayal of Judas, of course, as the hands-down greatest failure of all the disciples in, in the Gospels. Uh, but here in Mark, the angel specifically says, go tell Peter, the one who has just denied Christ. Why? Because the resurrection demonstrates the potency, the power of God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, uh, the forgiveness that is now available through the crucified death of Christ who died in our place for human sin, unbelief, and denial. Now, let's say you're Peter, man. At this moment, following your denial, you are loaded with guilt and shame. You feel like the biggest failure in the world. I mean, you denied Jesus Christ to protect your own skin, to protect your own image. And here the angel, or, or through the angel, I should say, God is saying, Peter, I love you. Peter, I'm not done with you. Peter, we're going to start this thing all over again. And I have a, a, a great plan for you. And here when the angel says, go find Peter, uh, we see God in the process of beginning to give Peter his life back after his worst moment, worst failure in his entire life. And there's more to this story. You go to the John's account at the end of the Gospel of John, and there the resurrected Jesus is with Peter, uh, and Jesus asks Peter three questions. The same question three times. Peter denied Jesus three times, so Peter is in the process of restoring, reinstituting, restating Peter, and he asks Peter this question three times. And, and if I was there, the question I would have asked Peter is, Peter, are you done now? Uh, Peter, are, are, are you going to stand up and are you going to be a man? Uh, Peter, are you going to obey me? Peter, are you going to stop messing up like this? That is not what Jesus asked. Jesus goes for something deeper. And so three times, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? 
Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And what Jesus is asking Peter is, Peter, will you put me above everyone and everything in life, regardless of the cost? You and I are Peter. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you've done it. It doesn't matter how deep and how how dark the sin, the unbelief, the denial was. Go tell Peter. Go get Peter. Let's get Peter back into the game. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin so that if we will believe and turn from our sin and turn by faith to Jesus, we might find forgiveness and eternal life and redemption. Three days later, following the crucifixion, God raises Jesus from the dead to validate that divine payment for sin. So this resurrection is a receipt. It's a divine receipt. You show when you leave the store. (laughs) Because it means the payment has been made. So the good news of the gospel is that God is a God of mercy. God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God of restoration and transformation. God is a God of tomorrows. Because he put his son to death on the cross in our place for our sin. And the resurrection is the receipt that means you are free to go. You are free to live. You are loved. You are forgiven. And it is this grace, and you've got to understand this, that totally changes, defeated, Christ-denying disciple. Uh, uh, Paraphrasing another, resurrection grace means that you and I can't earn God's favor. That's impossible. Uh, But resurrection grace means you have no fear of failure anymore. No fear of not measuring up. Christ has covered that for us. Uh, Resurrection grace, this resurrection grace this Easter means you and I are much worse than we thought. But in Christ, we can be far more than we ever dreamed possible. This resurrection grace puts us in our place without ever putting us down. This resurrection grace enables us to face hard truths about ourselves. Uh, But it frees us from image management. And who wants to live a life of image management? Uh, This resurrection grace will destroy your kingdom, but introduce you to the only wise, infinite, loving King of Kings. This resurrection grace will expose your spiritual blindness, but it will give you eyes to see things that you have never seen before. You see, you and I simply cannot, cannot live productive lives in this broken down world. Uh, uh, Apart 
from living in light of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that God offers in Jesus Christ and validates in the resurrection. And oh, do I want that for you this Easter. I want that productive life, that Jesus-centered life for you this Easter. Brings me to a third and my last point. The resurrection shows us everything. Everything Jesus Christ said is true. Uh, if you've got your Bible opened or if it's on, uh, look at the very last thing the angel says. Uh, the angel says, Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. There, there, uh, you will see him just as he said. Just as he said. Now, if what Jesus said about the resurrection is true, then everything Jesus said is true. Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. True. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. True. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. It's true. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever believes in me will never die. It's true. In my Father's house there are many rooms. I am going to prepare a place for you. It's true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If what Jesus said about the resurrection is true, then everything, everything Jesus said is true. Everything that Jesus said about prayer, everything Jesus said about his deity, everything Jesus said about life and death, about heaven and hell, everything in between, all true. So the resurrection means there is hope. Hope. And I hope you know that there is no hope in the world. That the world is not, not getting better. That you're not going to wake up tomorrow and, and read that the world has suddenly gotten stable. That there is, uh, uh, you're not going to wake up in a, a couple weeks and read, you know what, there's no more war ever. Uh, or terrorism or evil or uh, pollution and, and just on and on. Not going to happen. You are not a random, meaningless collection of biological matter that will disappear when you die. Everything Jesus said is true. You have been made in the image of God, God made you for eternity. Jesus has come. He died on the cross in Jerusalem uh, to forgive you, to, to bless you, to cleanse you, to protect you, to transform you, to get you to the other side and to give you hope. Hope. Uh, people today say, I'm not afraid to die. That's just not true. It's just not true. Our deepest desire is to be loved. Loved now and loved for eternity. 
This is why, for example, singleness can be so difficult. It's why a, a bad marriage can even be worse. We're hardwired to be loved. If everything Jesus Christ said is true, you will never find a deeper love than Jesus. No one loves you like uh, Jesus. No matter how deep the pain, no matter how steep the denial, no matter how hard the life, no matter how alone you feel, you will not miss anything because the best is yet to come. Now I want you to watch this video. This is a story of a woman in our church, Carolyn Wolf. And I want you to see how speaking from the conviction she has that everything Jesus said is true radiates and fills her life with hope. Let's watch this. Um, I think this story began as a series of prayer incidents that my friend Jean and I have been praying for a few years for prayer to be a vital part of Wheaton Bible Church. And we saw a great breakthrough at one of the um, prayer classes where one prayer class had been canceled due to not enough people. And we prayed fervently for the next one and there were like 100 people signed up. And it just seemed like, wow, a great victory. And that Monday night at our prayer time, both of us had a cancer that affected our neck area. And so I see this as a battle, as God's battle. My friend's cancer is like a, a real lazy one, that it'll just be there for years and years and years and nothing will be done. And then mine's the aggressive type. So um, we went to Loyola and I got a, a full where they take out all your lymph nodes. They took out 37 lymph nodes, 36 were cancerous. They took out my salivary gland and just did, took everything out. Then we had uh, seven weeks of radiation and chemo, and um, that was supposed to take care of it. And so a whole year of checkups and everything's fine and everything's fine. And then this past New Year's Eve, I was at my friend Jean's house for a party, and we were just... I forget why, but I happened to put my hand up here and I felt plump. So I went into the kitchen and said, Jean, she's a nurse, put your hand right there. And her eyes got big and she said, back to Loyola. We've got a huge support group that, you know, brings meals and, and prays and that, that has made the biggest difference. When my father passed away and there was so much grief and, and, and loneliness and sadness, I missed him. And I kind of, carried the load myself and then I thought when I got cancer first time around I thought I'm gonna do it differently I'm taking it out to the body of believers I'm, you know being vocal about it he hasn't he's created this for community he's created this for interaction he's created us to support one another the day you're born you know the end of your story you're gonna die you're gonna meet your maker and that's the end of the story what you need to do is stay on each page you're on and read the page. Sometimes when I'm sad and I just imagine being in God's presence, it's always a, it's always a happy place.
That's where God is. That's where my dad is. That's where my grandmother is. That's where some of the people that have taught Sunday school at Wheaton Bible Church are. And uh, I just can't wait to meet some of them again. One of the sermons where we have our boat in life and we're tempest torn and ready to capsize and Jesus is there sleeping because he's got it under control and we wake him up and, and he says, you know, where's your faith? I'm here. And, and then you know you're with him. You know you're okay. You know you're not alone. And the most grievous thing in my heart is if there's anybody that doesn't know Jesus is in the boat with them and their boat will sink and they'll be gone and their stepping over won't be glorious because they, they've never asked him they've never asked him to be their friend they've never asked him to come God's here and God's in this I'm just resting in that And if the resurrection means anything, as Carolyn has just said, it means that Jesus is here, just as here today as he was in the day in Jerusalem he was raised from the dead. It means that Jesus loves you. It means Jesus wants to take care of you. And if you have never done so, I want to invite you to come to Jesus Christ, to receive him by faith as your Savior and Lord. Would you bow with me and let's pray? Father, we thank you for the death of Jesus Christ. We worship you that you put your son to death in our place for our sins. You raised him from the dead, this divine receipt, stamp of approval, all to reveal how much you love us, how deeply you long to forgive us. And Father, I would pray if there is anyone in here, a, a, a visitor, somebody who hasn't been to church for a while, somebody's here struggling with an issue, maybe it's cancer. And if they haven't Receive Jesus as Savior. I pray that right now, right now they would. And if that's you, just pray with me simply. Jesus Christ, I have sinned against you. Thank you for dying for my sins. Save me. I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Come in and change my life from the inside out. Father, thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat>